0: So, welcome everybody. Can I ask you to sit down and then we begin. Um, I'm David Levy, I'm Director of the Reuters Institute and I'm delighted to welcome you all to our 30th anniversary reunion of the Journalism Fellowship Programme here. It's a pleasure to celebrate the achievements of our alumni and the Fellowship Programme over the past 30 years and to host such an exciting weekend on the future of journalism. So, welcome. It's great to see so many people here, whether that's our former journalist fellows, more than 100 of you from more than 30 countries, our very distinguished speakers, friends and guests, many of whom have traveled a great distance to be here, or our supporters and many sponsors, foremost amongst them the Thomson Reuters Foundation, without whom this event, this institute, and indeed the fellowship program itself wouldn't exist. To those of you who are alumni, we hope this weekend offers you a reminder of your time in Oxford. Whether that was just a year, or even a couple of decades ago, or even almost 30 years ago, as well as a refresher and opportunity to give your perspective on the debates about current trends in the industry. I'd also draw your attention to the flyer about the Fellows Fellowship Fund in your pack, which is aimed at giving another journalist the chance to come to Oxford. We are only succeed in that goal of getting another journalist here with your support, so find the form somewhere, no doubt, at the bottom of your pack, and ideally fill it in before you leave. To our other guests and supporters, we hope that you too will learn from as well as contribute to the exchanges over this weekend and leave with a better sense of our research, the key issues in the industry, and an understanding for why the program here is such an inspiring and often life changing experience for our journalist fellows. Now, it wasn't quite here, but it was five years ago that I made the opening speech at our 25th anniversary celebrations in what was then my first week at the Institute. Two things have happened since then. The first is I'm even more conscious of the heavy responsibility that one bears as director of an Institute that's treasured by over 500 alumni from across the world, more than 90 countries, and how much I owe to my predecessors, to Neville Maxwell, who had the vision to found the program 30 years ago, and to Godfrey Hodgson and Paddy Coulter, who each built so successfully on those foundations, and both of whom are taking part in the weekend. The second thing that struck me, compared to five years ago, is just how much we've achieved in the five years um, since 2008. In developing the fellowship programme, building up the Institute's research and reputation, and integrating our research with our fellows' work. The book that's in your pack on India's media boom is based largely on fellows' research papers, and it's the first of what we hope will be many examples, well, it's one of the examples of that integration between our fellows' work and our research. Now whatever we've done in the last five years has depended on the hard work and commitment of all my colleagues here. Both those you'll hear from quite a lot in the next couple of days, John Lloyd, James Painter and Robert Pickard, as well as the people who serve on our committees and Tim Gardham, our chair, and the great administrative team we have that ensures the success of events like these. Now there's a rumour that the months of July and August are a quiet time in universities all over the world. I can tell you it's not been like that this summer at the Reuters Institute. Kate Hannaford-Smith and Moni Ricketts have been working flat out to organise all the different aspects of this weekend's events <clears throat> with near military precision. They're both at the back of the hall there. At the same time, Alex Reed has been shepherding through a record number of public publications over the summer, at my count, over ten between mid-June and the end of this month with her usual commitment to getting things delivered right and on time. And all that work can only happen because of the support from other colleagues here, Tanya Vale, our administrator, and Rebecca Edwards, and from Janice French and all her colleagues at the Department of Politics and International Relations. Many thanks to all of them. Now to the substance of the weekend. I was delighted when earlier this year Mark Thompson agreed to our invitation to deliver the Reuters Memorial Lecture today on the subject of newspaper economics based on his early experiences of the New York Times. None of us knew in January how the UK media scene would look in September. But things move. Things happen. <laughs> um, John Lloyd will introduce Mark shortly, but before that, I want to thank, uh, record my thanks to Mark for agreeing to give what I know will be a fascinating lecture. Now, I'd like to note that Obviously, there's a great deal of public debate and public interest in the UK in what Mark has to say about his time at the BBC. That's the focus of his session before the House of Commons Public Accounts Committee on Monday afternoon. I'm sure it'll be streamed live and will be very good watching. But the subject for today is about his current job <laughs> and what we can learn from his experience of the New York Times about the current travails of the international newspaper industry. He's got a lot to say on that important subject, material that affects pretty much everybody in this room, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, we've got a very full and stimulating program ahead of us, I hope you all enjoy it, and once again, it's a pleasure to see so many of you here in Oxford. Make sure you get the best out of lots of the sessions that are happening here, but not just the things that we've organized, but in the spirit of the fellowship program in general, also, the chance to exchange ideas and experiences with such an experienced global group of journalists. Now, over to John Lloyd, our Director of Journalism, to introduce our speaker for tonight, and to Mark Thompson. Thank you.
1: Thanks, David. i am be sharing the session uh, with Mark. Um, I don't want to say too much about him, God knows today I don't have to say too much about him. (laughs) All you have to do is to read the newspapers and watch the telly on Monday night when two big beasts of the media jungle, not wholly unaligned to this university, will take each other on. However, I should just remind you of what you already know, and that is that Mark had uh, a tremendously distinguished career at the BBC, uh, interrupted only for a couple of years when he was CEO of Channel 4. And now, for much of the last year, he has become CEO and president of what is regarded, certainly by itself, but by many others, as the greatest newspaper in the world. And he'll be talking talking, alas, not about the BBC. So any questions about these will be met with an adamantine refusal to comment. He will be talking, though, about what's close to newspaper people's heart, and that is the future of newspapers. Is there one, and how do you pay for it? So, big hand for Mark Thompson.
2: Okay, thanks, John. Um, And good afternoon, everyone. Um, So my topic this afternoon um, is rethinking the economics of newspaper journalism. But uh, before I jump into that, I do have a couple of rather large health warnings to share with you. Um, Health warning number one. I'm very much a first year undergraduate in the economics of newspaper journalism. Uh, November the 12th, 2012, in the centenary year of the sinking of the Titanic, was the day I chose to climb aboard the newspaper industry. And that means I now have precisely nine months and 25 days experience to my name. Now, fortunately, I do know a bit about journalism and about digital. And my new colleagues at The Times, um, back in in New York, have been working around the clock to help me fill in the missing gaps. Nonetheless, uh, um, because I know um, how much expertise is gathered in this room, I do stand in front of you with a a real sense of humility. The second warning is about the applicability of what I do now know. A few days after I started at The Times, the Toe Centre for Digital Journalism at Columbia the Columbia Journalism School, published a splendid doorstop of an essay called Post-Industrial Journalism, Adapting to the Present. Great, I thought, this is exactly the kind of how-to manual I've been looking for. Uh, And then I got to page 17. The New York Times, it says on page 17, is in, quote, a category of one. And, quote, any sentence that begins, let's take the New York Times as an example, is thus liable to explain or describe very little about the rest of the landscape. The choices its, its management make and the outcomes of those choices are not illustrative or predictive for most other news organisations, large or small, old or new. We will therefore spend comparatively little time discussing its fate. What does that mean? It means that whatever I have picked up in the past few months may not be of much use to anyone else anyway. But uh, just before you start uh, gently sidling towards the exit, let me tell you what I will try and do over the next half hour or so. Arthur Salzberger Jr. and the New York Times company hired me as a fresh pair of eyes, someone from a different country and a different, though in some ways maybe not so different, industry. And one of the things I want to share with you today is what I've seen with those fresh eyes over the past nine months. And I'm going to take that stern warning from Messrs. Anderson and Shirky and our own Emily Bell about the non-applicability and non-transferability of the experience of the New York Times with a generous pinch of salt. The Times, I believe, is unique and in many ways today more than ever. It has unique opportunities and both in its readers and in its owners' minds, unique cultural obligations and journalistic ambitions as well. But it is still a news provider And the same behavioural, technological and commercial forces of change that are playing on other news providers play on the Times too. And when it comes to newspaper economics in particular, if you prick us, do we too not bleed? So forgive me if my every other sentence begins. Let's take the New York Times as an example. And there's another question I'd like to worry away at a little bit as we explore the future of newspapers this afternoon, which is why did Jeff Bezos buy the Washington Post? Some claim that he clicked on it by accident. (laughs) (laughs) Others that from now on, the Post will deliver the news in three to five business days. Uh, But I'd be careful about dismissing the purchase as a rich man's whim or a pure piece of altruism. And even if we don't know the real answer to the question, and I certainly don't bring any special inside knowledge to the table, we should still ask ourselves why one of the world's most imaginative and brilliant entrepreneurs decided to buy the Washington Post... And whether, at a time of so much anxiety and pessimism in our industry, he's seen something that the rest of us have yet to spot. On April the 15th this year, I was in the New York Times newsroom with our executive editor Jill Abramson and her team as the 2013 Pulitzer Prize winners were announced. Quite a crop for the Times and a real tribute to her first full year at the helm. The prizes closely mirroring her particular ambitions for the newsroom. Innovation in the digital storytelling with Snowfall, an undiminished commitment to large-scale enterprise or investigative journalism with the I Economy story. Another winner, David Barbosa's brilliant investigation of the Wen family in China, illustrated something else, the willingness, not just of the newsroom, but of the whole company, to put out revelatory journalism in the public interest, irrespective of the commercial consequences. Our Chinese website remains blocked to this day. But as we were cheering the winners, another piece of news abruptly popped up on the monitors. The bombing of the Boston Marathon. And within seconds, this terrible new unfolding story became the sole focus of attention. One New York Times staffer had run the race himself in a very fast time and made it back to his hotel room, only to get a call to tell him to run straight back to cover the story. But just like the Pulitzer, the Boston also points to something interesting and important about the present and future of news journalism. Once, and not so long ago, different papers, TV channels and news websites competed for who was going to be the first with the really big breaking story. Now we know in advance where that story is almost certainly going to appear first. Twitter and sites like it. They usually beat us all. And yet the problem with Twitter is you don't just get the news, you get everything else as well. Uncorroborated but potentially precious eyewitness testimony and citizen journalism, but also rumour, speculation, disinformation, propaganda, lies, and general nuttiness. Um, Just a few years ago, it was sometimes suggested that the world's professional journalists might well soon be replaced by a kind of Wikipedia of news reported and curated by a global army of publicly-spirited amateurs. But quite apart from issues of political and cultural bias and subjectivity, it turns out that what we face in a major unfolding hard news story is a vast roiling sea of actuality, with fresh breakers crashing in every few seconds, and with both truth and narrative often fiendishly hard to pick out. In these circumstances, great professional reporting and editing skills and great journalistic values aren't obsolete. They're more important than ever. Jill, Dean Baquet, our managing editor, and members of the masthead were in the newsroom pretty much around the clock that week. Not to second guess the mechanics of the coverage, But because in the age of Twitter, classic editorial standards about sources and fact-checking and balance and only going with something when you're sure, these classic standards are even more of a premium than they used to be. And what I thought was interesting about Boston was the way in which, given that this was a major domestic US story, the news blogs, the Times lead blog, that I was also following the Globe, Boston Globe, The Guardian, and yes, the BBC, I thought these news blogs outpaced cable TV news. In these live blogs, we and others are developing a fluid, characterful, mixed media, rather snowfall-like way of guiding the reader through a momentous, frightening, perplexing real-time event. Sharing some of the as-yet-unconfirmed reports and stories, but contextualising them. Aggregating and curating what other media outlets are saying, but always being very clear about what we know for sure and what we don't and all of it underpinned by outstanding storytelling and editing. And for me, though I'm sure others will say it happened far sooner, Boston was a story where conventional linear TV got overtaken and where some of the efforts to keep up went horribly awry. Another assumption from a few years ago, then, was that newspapers could no longer compete with hard news, that their role, if they had one, would increasingly be in the realms of analysis, context, comment, and features. But although these are all important and indeed are all areas of great strength for the new york times this is another prediction which now looks questionable in the world of twitter Timesian accuracy and authority are precious when it comes to really big breaking news and along with others our newsroom is rapidly innovating in the ways it tells these stories on web and smartphone because as boston showed with more than 50% of all digital traffic coming from phones. It is on smartphone, more than the web, more than tablet even, more one day soon perhaps even than TV. It's on smartphones that the sharp edge of these really big stories will be consumed. So investigative journalism, authoritative comment, narrative innovation and major breaking news. We might add serious in-depth international reporting. My first broad point is that despite seemingly overwhelming new competition, the journalism that serious newspapers do has retained its saliency and its indispensability, and that we're currently seeing more journalistic and creative digital innovation from these players than the serious newspapers, than we are either from the tabloid newspaper world or the broadcasters. And despite sometimes brilliant work on the web and TV, it's interesting how often Even today, it's the world's great newspapers which are in the thick of the most difficult and most controversial journalism. A perfect example of this is the work done this year by The Guardian and The Washington Post on the Edward Snowden story, a story on which, as you probably saw the um, um, uh, first evidence of yesterday, The New York Times is also currently engaged. Indeed, some of the forces that work elsewhere in the news environment are making what we do more distinctive and more indispensable. The turning away... In the united states of much of the rest of the news media across print tv and the web from thorough international reporting and all the costs associated with it that turning away means that in terms of outstanding american professional journalism about the rest of the world the new york times faces less competition than it did 10 or 50 years ago the challenge is making it pay so let's look at our first slide if we can Um, This chart shows the two main revenue streams of the New York Times and how they've changed over time. Advertising, you can see there in red, I hope, and circulation in blue. And you can see, first of all, that uh, around uh, 2012, we hit an inflection point where circulation revenue overtook advertising revenue for the first time. So I'm going to talk about advertising first. It's past, it's present, but most importantly, how we think about its future. The Columbia, that study, uh, post-industrial journalism, used the word subsidy to describe the historic model whereby advertising revenue paid for quality journalism. I'd rather use the more neutral and I think more historically accurate term, indirect revenue. The word subsidy brings us right up to the present and the dilemma of what kinds of public or private business model can be found to support what we take to be a social and cultural good. But actually, Adolf Ochs, who bought the New York Times in 1895, and owners like him, thought about things in a very different way. Adolf Ochs believed passionately in the social and cultural value of journalism, but he also thought he could make a lot of money out of it. And over time, it became clear that indirect revenue, from advertisers willing to pay to get their messages in front of the readers of the Times might actually deliver more dollars than direct revenue, in other words, from sales, direct newsstand sales, and subscriptions. Moreover, the more readers you had, the more you could charge advertisers so that it might make sense to set the price of the newspaper low to optimise the newspaper's reach. Now, it's true, therefore, that as a result, a given reader might well be able to buy a copy for less than it costs to produce. And in this narrow sense of the word, Yes, it was a subsidy model from the point of view of the end user. But in fact, it was just the optimal business model for the time and remains the preferred model for many of the world's newspapers and the vast majority of news websites and apps today. In digital, indeed, most players set the price of access, the equivalent of the per copy price, at zero and aim to monetize by maximising reach and then selling that reach to advertisers. All that's happened since Adolf Ochs's day is that the competition has changed the profile of advertising demand and therefore a publisher's pricing power. Many of America's major quality newspapers enjoyed near monopoly power in their advertising markets and were able to price accordingly. The New York Times faced quality competition for much of its life as a New York newspaper and still does today as a national physical newspaper from the Wall Street Journal. But intense demand from advertisers meant that historically it too could charge premium prices For its advertising and it still does today across many categories but as this chart shows rather starkly from the middle 2000s onwards advertising demand in some categories began to shift swiftly away from print towards the internet. Let's bring that to life. In the year 2000 slightly before this chart help wanted by which I mean classified job advertisements in the physical New York Times help wanted Brought in over 200 million in revenue, $200 million a year in revenue. Last year, 2012, the figure was 13 million, a 94% fall, 94% fall. A further challenge is that that print advertising, like help wanted classified advertisements, is very high margin. A dollar of revenue delivers 90 cents of profitability. So the big top line falls in categories like this also puts immediate pressure on the bottom line as well. And it says something about the fundamental resilience of the New York Times as a business that it could absorb shocks like this and still make very healthy profits as it does today. Now, we've seen some stabilisation in some categories, a little bit of growth in some categories, but nonetheless... Some of the structural pressures at work on print advertising remain and we've continued to see net declines, though at a less dramatic rate than uh, around 2008. Since, so you can see it's, it's, although there was an enormous fall, this is also connected with a world economic and financial crisis, by the way, which didn't, didn't, didn't help very much uh, in the 2008-09 period. You can see that although um, the, the decline is moderated, it's still, it's still declining. Success in digital advertising served to moderate the angle of decline of the red line from what it might otherwise be. But we need to be very, very clear-eyed about digital advertising as well. Digital advertising is a market which itself is rapidly maturing and changing. Agencies and clients want what they've always wanted, impact and engagement. But they're now particularly looking to video and multimedia, ad unit innovation and customisation, and advertising which readers encounter within rather than alongside the news flow. More and more of them also have ambitions to present their own content to users, not just simple visual messages and marketing copy, but longer, more complex ideas and information. These last two impulses have led to the rapid rise of so-called native advertising, advertising which, taken to the extreme, can be more or less indistinguishable from the journalism that surrounds it, not just blurring the line between church and state, but deceiving the reader and potentially leading to disasters like the Atlantic's unhappied sponsored blog about the Church of Scientology this January. At the New York Times, we will never sell that kind of native advertising or take any risks with the clear boundary between journalism and marketing. That doesn't mean that all forms of branded content are impossible, however, after all the physical New York Times has been running editorials for many years. But the effect of all of these dynamics is shifting demand rapidly towards video and new kinds of digital advertising and away from the traditional digital banner display. It's quite interesting that we've now got to the point where we can talk about traditional digital banner uh, display ads. Programmatic buying, in other words, the machine-to-machine, real-time auctioning of advertisements is also growing swiftly and exacerbating the downward pressure on price uh, as is the ability of uh, advertising agencies to use data to find the readers of premium digital news on other sites, which may charge them a fifth or a tenth of the, same, of the price to, save, to serve the same advertisement to the same consumer. It's a very important point, this, that you can use cookies and other techniques to track individuals and to find them, same person, on a, on a site which doesn't have the prestige and doesn't have the high prices of a site like the New York Times. And beneath all of this there's a fundamental economic point. The digital advertising market is vast and all of the world's advertisers, uh, all of the world's news publishers, even the very largest ones, are minnows in it. Overall monthly impressions have been growing far faster than marketing budgets in most of the developed world, and that supply demand imbalance has had its own effect on prices. But in the general digital advertising market, pricing power lies with the really big players, the Googles and the Facebooks, with their billions and billions of impressions. If you're competing with general display advertising, you will find that even 100 million unique users a month, an amazing achievement in terms of reach and user impact, converts into surprisingly few dollars or pounds. The structure of the market means that that's unlikely to change. Now, none of this means that we're giving up on digital advertising at the New York Times, far from it. We be- believe we have great scope to develop our high end custom business and to offer advertisers the most creative, immersive solutions in the market. We're excited about video. We've doubled video impressions in the first half of this year, and we've seen video advertising revenue growing so far this year by more than 200%, be it from a very small base. We're convinced that we can use our own data and programmatic buying much more effectively to make our valuable audience available to advertisers for the best price at every point in the market. And we're combining our US and global sales force into one team. We have a new head of advertising, Meredith Levine, who's joined us from Forbes. And her task is to use these and other means to restore our digital advertising revenue to growth, as well as to stabilise and where possible find growth through innovation in our print advertising platform. But, and I say this speaking not for others, but just for the New York Times, It's also true that we are sceptical about whether digital advertising on its own will ever be a sufficiently large and secure revenue stream to support a large-scale quality news operation. There's nothing wrong with indirect revenue as such. Once advertising was more than 80% of the Times' revenue, and it paid for the newsroom for decades, it still supports much of America's and the world's TV production, including TV news, though in the US there, too, Structural shifts in competition have led to a downward spiral in ad revenue and therefore investment in journalism. In the glory days of print advertising, publishers like Adolf Ochs enjoyed a supply and demand advantage and a pricing power which can never be replicated in digital. We want to drive advertising revenue as hard as we possibly can, but we also know that for the Times, growth, growth in revenue and growth in profitability, will not come from advertising alone. And that brings us to the other line in my chart, the blue line for circulation revenue. Now the circulation story, there it is going up. Pricing, newsstand sales, historic print subscription traditions, current digital subscriptions really does vary widely from market to market and the trends feel less universal than those in advertising. I accept therefore that our strategy at the New York Times could never be applied in its entirety to other papers in the US or elsewhere. Nonetheless, I believe that the philosophy is interesting and potentially, at least, in part, useful to others. Now, as you can see, circulation revenue has actually grown in recent years and now contributes over $800 million uh, a year, or more than half of the company's revenues. Indeed, the New York Times today has the highest paid circulation in its 160-year history, with close to 2 million paying subscribers to physical and digital copies. Again, price and pricing power are key Some three decades ago, the Times began to move from the pure advertising platform model, low price, maximum reach, towards a more blended approach with a cover price which reflected the value to readers of the paper and indeed a price which was the highest in the market. There was also a systematic effort to build a number of home subscribers. Reach was still important to the overall economics of the company, but the New York Times was able to build it in a different way by transforming itself into a genuinely national newspaper in the US, printing across the country, attracting readers and subscribers from all over the United States and selling truly national advertising. The Times was already America's best known newspaper, but this move turned that cultural prestige more effectively into revenue and also provided the best possible launch pad when digital came along. To state the obvious, the different destinies of the New York Times, and US Metro newspapers, the Washington Post, and indeed the Boston Globe among them, stems from this national pivot. The New York Times invested relatively early and aggressively in digital, and quickly became one of the world's leading news sites. Now, there were a few experiments with pay, but for most of the first decade and a half of digital, the prevailing business model was the ad platform one, price set at zero with revenue expected from advertising. And yet at the same time, in the print world, the Times was building a consumer expectation of premium pricing for a premium product and was striving to secure as many long-term loyal subscribers as it could. And therefore, seen in this light, the decision in 2011 to shift to a metered pay model in digital looks less like a wild leap in the dark than the application online on our mobile devices of what was already a proven model in print. There were plenty of unknowns, and by the way, there are still quite a few unknowns. But the new pay model was aimed at a group of consumers, many of whom already had an expectation of paying because of the value they perceived in Times journalism. Nor, of course, was the Times alone. The FT and The Economist had been trailblazers of the metered model, and The Wall Street Journal had also successfully launched a paywall. But the New York Times was by far the biggest general interest, as opposed to finance and business newspaper, to ask for and get premium subscriptions for its content. At the end of the second quarter of this year, we had had around 700,000 digital only subscribers, in addition to our 1.2 million print subscribers, three quarters of whom have registered to use our digital services, as well as the physical newspaper. So what next? Well, here's one way of thinking about our task. Um, there we go. Um, I've tried to capture with this chart um, uh, conceptually rather than sort of uh, with exact numbers. It says where value comes from uh, when you make a new product and, and how people use it. So on the um, uh, x-axis, first of all, the users, uh, um, um, take that to be... All the people who touch the New York Times every month. 43 million people lie across the x-axis. Um, on the y-axis, I put a T, and you, I mean I, I guess I mean time there, but think of time as a surrogate for, for engagement or the amount of value you get out of the journalism of The Times. Uh, the, the bigger it is, the more time you're spending and probably the more value you're, you're getting from it. Um, and so um, if you think of it of, the, of this curve, up at the top left there, you've got the most engaged readers, seven day a week, home delivery, or maybe an all digital access subscriber. And they're spending a lot of time with us and paying quite a lot of money for the privilege. On the other end, you might well have very light users, people whose touch point is a handful, perhaps even just one single story in a given month, something they found via Google or, or uh, Facebook or uh, An email alert. So, you know, one story, which they don't get anywhere near the paywall, they don't pay anything for it, it's free down there. And where we expect to get money by selling advertising in respect of those lighter users, as you move towards the left, we're thinking much more about whether we can have an engaged, direct, consumer paying relationship with the individuals. And so, in a way, what this chart says to me is two things. Firstly, there's there's an opportunity for a blended model and that it's more efficient towards the left to be thinking about a direct relationship, a deep relationship, and essentially where we can a subscriber relationship. Towards the right, we still want to think very hard about advertising and in many ways, just as with um, cable and and satellite TV around the world, where we can get both advertising revenue and subscription revenue uh, in respect of a given audience, we'd like to do that. Um, So the important thing for me is to focus on the area under this curve, to think about how we can get the area under the curve as big as it can be, because that, I think, is in the end going to convert into the revenue for the company, and not to get too hung up on what I now think feels like a rather arid ideological debate between pay and free in digital, as if the only kind of pay which is possible is a very hard and impenetrable wall, and when you erect it, It means a dramatic loss of influence as well as a dramatic loss loss of 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 readers so you get an attack on how many readers you've got online you get an attack on your reach that you can sell to advertisers and also you have an attack on civic value because so many fewer people using it the the model we've moved to is much more hybrid with a sense that you want to still have an opportunity of getting the reach but but uh, not at the price of foregoing the potentially very valuable direct, direct revenue. Now, it's, of course, possible to have a hard wall. The Times paywall here in the, in the UK would be an example of that. But the rigid paywall is not the only choice. The New York Times wall, if you want to call it a wall, is flexible and porous. We don't meet the referrals from social media or email. And sometimes, when we learn more about user behaviour, we tighten. Uh, uh, So we can loosen, we can tighten. We recently limited the number of free stories on the New York Times apps to three a day, for example. On other occasions, when we think there's a powerful civic reason for doing doing it, we will take the paywall down completely. We did that for Hurricane Sandy. We did it for the US election last autumn. We did it for Boston. Um, So there'll be occasions where we actually say, it's all free. We don't want to turn people needlessly away We want everyone to have an opportunity to sample Times journalism, but we also want as many people to pay for it as possible. Nobody ever suggested giving the physical New York Times away for nothing, or The Guardian or The Telegraph or Le Monde or the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. And that's because it's intuitively obvious that a quality newspaper, a quality physical newspaper, costs a lot of money to make. But so too, just as surely does a quality news website, and for many of the same reasons. Since 2011, we've launched a basic suite of pay products for our most committed readers, those with high demonstrated willingness to pay. And the first plank of our new strategy is to develop additional pay offerings aimed at those who tell us they would certainly pay something for Times journalism, but less less than the $200 or so, which is our current lowest digital subscription per year. That we also intend to create... Enhanced offerings for those who tell us they would pay us even more than the current most expensive subscription, which in digital is about $350, uh, and in terms of print, um, seven days a week is well over $800 a year. They'd pay us more if we offered them the right additional features and services. We want, if you you can bear to hear the jargon, we want to exploit, therefore, more of the demand curve. But we want to do it not just with kind of cut down or pumped up versions of our current offering, but with fresh expressions of our journalism that our newsroom and the rest of the company can really believe in with their own integrity and appeal. One of the new ideas is a project with the working title of Need to Know. Um, Though it will be available on all digital platforms, we're developing it for mobile and particularly for smartphone first. And it's intended to offer users the perfect briefing, not just on the news that's already happened, but on the events and the stories up ahead that our editors have already got their eye on. we want to do it with its own voice and its own flavour. If you have a look on uh, mytimes.com and look at uh, the Metro section and New York Today, which again is a very crisp, rather witty um, uh, briefing about the day ahead in New York City. Um, very interesting about the web. It's been one of the most popular things we've done in recent years. Uh, it's very specific about New York City. Half the people who use it don't live in, in, in New York and many of them don't live in the United States. It's, uh, it's the way the web works. Um, but if you, if you have a look at that and have a look at the, the kind of insider's flavour of that and the wit, you get a sense of what we're thinking for, for Need to Know. And we're also at work on a set of other offerings, ranging from opinion, uh, one of the Times' greatest strengths, to food and dining. And in all cases, and despite any false rumours you may have heard or read to the contrary, all of the editorial leadership rests as it always should and will, with Jill Abramson and the newsroom and with Andy Rosenthal, uh, our editorial head, and his team in the editorial area. The ability to exploit the same underlying intellectual property through multiple formats and time windows, from theatrical release, DVD, pay TV, free TV, merchandising, and so on, is what made it possible for Hollywood to keep movies profitable, despite their colossal initial cost, and despite the fragmentation of entertainment, first by TV, and then by digital. Now, news is too time sensitive for many windows through time, But the development of multiple different expressions of our journalism, optimised for particular audiences and use cases, aims to achieve a similar economic benefit. And the opportunity to use an established and celebrated news brand as the basis for new digital products, whether pay or free, is certainly one possible reason why Jeff Bezos might have been attracted to the Washington Post. We want to concentrate all of our efforts on leveraging the talent of that newsroom and the reputational power of the New York Times to build a successful and sustainable business based on a single core brand and one integrated journalistic operation on all platforms and in all territories. That's why we decided this year to sell the Boston Globe. The Globe is a great newspaper which I'm confident will thrive under John Henry's ownership. But as I noted earlier, the business model of America's Metro papers is very different from that of the Times. Over 20 years of ownership of the globe, the synergies between the two operations were low. Most importantly of all, we want to concentrate all of our efforts on the New York Times itself. And that's why in just over a month's time, we will rename the International Herald Tribune the International New York Times. For the first time, not just the physical newspapers, but every version of our website and of our apps will all be under the same brand name. Our newsrooms around the world are already working far more closely together than before, and editorial content of the global edition of the website will be handed over for the first time to Jill and Andy's teams in London, Paris and Hong Kong. 30 years after the Times moved to become a national newspaper, we want to explore what the international opportunity could be for us in terms of new subscribers and new advertising revenue from our English language, physical and digital services, as well as from the possibilities of services in other languages? Can we extend the number of people who encounter Times journalism, but also deepen their engagement and persuade more of them to subscribe? Without any marketing whatsoever, without the ability to address people who hit the pay gate in their own language, or to bill them in any currency other than the dollar, we've gained around 70,000 digital subscribers from outside the US since the pay model became uh, went live two and a half years ago. I'm one of them. I sat in a, a house about half a mile away from here and found the pay gate on my own and took out my credit card. But you're asked to pay in dollars uh, and many people around the world don't like taking out a credit card and paying in another language. I wasn't marketed to. There was no sense of a direct relationship. I did it because I thought uh, the Times, uh, New York Times was a great newspaper and I wanted to be a subscriber and a few months later, I got a phone call from Martha Salzberger as it happened, but I began, you know, <laughs> customer first, CEO second sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> so, what can we do when we put the marketing in place where we make it much easier for people to, to subscribe and we let them do it in their own language? We also, as I said earlier, want to explore what a fully joined up advertising sales force can achieve around the world with the New York Times brand and the interesting and very valuable readers we attract both in digital and in print but yes our main ambition is to expand our base of paying digital subscribers by reaching beyond the united states and again it seems to me that the international name recognition and reputation of the washington post unique amongst the metros and the potential that comes with that may be another reason why jeff bought it we're developing other new revenue streams as well i've mentioned video already short form video is a creative challenge for all news organizations on the web news Uh, users are used to very rapid scanning of stories, and even the broadcasters with any amount of video to put up there have often discovered that text and still images do the job best for many consumers. Newsroom or studio-based video talk, which the Times has experimented with over the years and which both the Wall Street Journal and the Huffington Post are spending heavily on at the moment, this kind of talk can work well when there's a big and real-time event to talk about. I thought that the Times' video coverage of last autumn's election... Combining news feeds of some of the key moments with cogent analysis, I thought that worked very well, and it certainly drove video impressions. But as the 24-hour TV news channels discovered many years ago, there's nothing quite as gruesome as journalists talking to each other on video when nothing is actually happening. But there are great journalistic and creative opportunities as well. In the field, in Syria, for example, where our, our Chris Chivers has done such brilliant work, so I see Lloyd Robertson in the audience. The video journalists working for a newspaper can find themselves on a surprisingly even playing field when compared with the most formidable broadcasters on the planet. I thought the use of video in snowfall, fully integrated into the story and into the multimedia experience, so that it never occurs to you not to watch the testimony of the survivors or to watch the animating graphics and landscapes as your eye moves down the unfolding narrative, I thought that showed a way forward in which one no longer thinks of video as essentially a separate exercise sitting alongside the core text journalism as a kind of complementary experience for those who have got the time and the inclination to watch it, but something which is integral, central and unmissable. So we're developing a new programming strategy for our video, stretching from hard news to opinion. The OpDocs, commissioned and curated by Andy Rosenthal's editorial team, are amongst the most creatively interesting videos, in my view, that The Times offers currently but also moving to lifestyle areas, food, travel, fashion, and so on, which are strong at the paper. The video must aspire to the same standard as the written journalism, and be just as kind of timesy-in in its quality and its characterfulness. But what is not at issue is advertising interest. There's intense demand for opportunities to, to place video advertising on The New York Times, and we're currently leaving money on the table because we don't just have enough video advertising opportunities to actually satisfy the demand. Finally, we're, we're also looking at other ways of, of extending uh, and exploiting the, the brand and the consumer expectations of the New York Times. We're working on conferences. We're bringing the very established International Herald Tribune conference business and the relatively new New York Times conference business together and scaling them significantly. Uh, we've got a fantastic um, franchise in the New York Times Crossword, which people will know in America is, a, is an institution Almost by accident, it was launched as a separate digital subscription uh, a few years ago and has has gained, frankly, with not too much attention or um, design until very recently, well over 150,000 subscribers and growing. And we believe that we've got both consumer expectation also the potential to build out a franchise, not in Angry Birds, but in a certain kind of smart game for smart people. And we're also looking at e-commerce. So in an interview with the... uh, uh, the Washington Post earlier this, this week, Jeff Bezos talked about uh, um, his acquisition, didn't explain quite, quite you know, what he intended um, other than to support great journalism. Um, he did talk about his commitment to give the paper what he called the economic runway it needed to develop a new business model. But I thought one of the most interesting things was he also reflected on what he, he felt he'd learnt over the past couple of decades uh, at his own business, Amazon. And he said, we've had three big ideas at Amazon that we've stuck to for 18 years, and they're the reason we're successful. Put your customer first, invent, and be patient. And he said, if you replace customer with reader, that approach, that point of view, can be successful at the post too. Much of what I've said tonight is about building a model first and foremost around the reader and about the need, if we want to secure the future of these great news operations, to invent and to innovate. But Jeff's third point, be patient, is worth taking seriously too. The internet is an intrinsically free medium and nobody will ever pay for anything on it. Professional journalism is over. We're being forced to exchange analog dollars for digital pennies. For the past 10 years and more, newspapers have lived in the shadow of these and other gloomy nostrums, all of them based on the premise that digital is a one-off revolution, whose consequences are decided and easy to understand. But none of that is true. Amazon is one of the companies that first proved not just that people will pay for things on the web, but that they they can become habituated to it. The success of the Times pay model, as well as that of others, suggests that discerning readers will pay for high-quality journalism and at prices. Cheapest Times digital subscription, remember, is $200 a year, the most expensive three hundred and fifty. dollars Prices which are not one or five or ten cents, but more like twenty to forty cents in the dollar compared to print subscriptions, and with underlying lower costs attached to them. We believe that the engagement of the readers of the New York Times can be turned into growing revenues and profits. We don't believe that digital is a done deal. We expect to run a hybrid business for many years to come, print and digital not to mention subscription and vital ad revenues as far out as anyone can see. Nor do we believe that the landscape around us will remain static. We expect to have to invent and pivot constantly to meet fresh challenges in technology and the market. But the whole time, we're going to be looking for opportunities, new offerings, new partnerships, new sources of revenues, as well as the inevitable threats. One thing won't change. The fact that it's even possible to have this conversation about the New York Times is because of the steadfast commitment of the company and its owners to support a particular vision of outstanding journalism. That is the bedrock on which everything else is built, and however else we change the business of the Times, I believe that that commitment should not and will not ever falter. Thank you.
1: As a newspaper man myself, it's rare to have a, an optimistic view of the future of newspapers, and I'm glad, very glad you gave it. There's also a great sales talk. Uh, judging, from, <laughs> judging from Mark's experience, if you subscribe to the New York Times, you too could be offered a job yeah. by the owner at a million dollars a year. So sign up now. <laughs> but before, we, before we came in, Mark was saying that that the the New York Times and BBC were similar in some ways. Uh, Similar in the sense that, that at least in, in, in New York City, and to a degree in America and even beyond America, New York Times enjoyed the same kind of reputation that the BBC does. That is, it's looked up to, it's regarded as being something of a standard... If it falls below the standard, it gets a huge amount of criticism because it's assumed that it has a high standard. But it also, I think, in the last few years, the, these, both of these big institutions, one of them over a century old, the New York Times, the other one just a little under a century old, the BBC, which have seemed so solid, uh, so eternal, uh, have shown that they've, they've also got... Um, a series of problems uh, and can be quite fragile. BBC roiled with, with scandals over the last few years. The New York Times, as you've said so eloquently, now depends upon not on advertising, which kept newspapers going for the last 100 years and more, but actually on finding new platforms on which to, through which to exploit the news. Both of them, then, are in... Both of these great institutions are in a fragile state. Do, do you feel? Did you feel when you were at the head of the BBC? Do you feel now that they are more fragile? Do you get a sense of the of the of the earth moving, and not, not in a good way?
2: Well, look. I mean, media. The me, media. Media as a whole is obviously going through a period of extraordinarily rapid change. Um, Something I felt at Channel 4, by the way, and I feel at the New York Times, is um, the the fact of the licence fee in this country and the fact of the public support for the licence fee, which remains very high, is a central protection for the idea of the BBC and public service broadcasting in this country, which is a fantastic kind of anchor in, in a media environment that you have that. Now, that did not happen in the United States of America. There's some very interesting debates in the 1920s in America and in the UK about which way things should go and in the UK where there's a long tradition of, of public funding and underpinning of all sorts of cultural <laughs> events from public libraries to you know um, other, other, other art forms, museums, galleries and so forth. Um, uh, the decision was taken to have in broadcasting a bedrock which was publicly funded. The United States has got a number of ways in which the public funding um, comes in and uh, famously both PBS and NPR um, uh, 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 constantly are asking, appealing directly for the public for, for charitable giving, for philanthropic. But essentially the US media, broadcasting but also newspapers, it's been a commercial model. Now what I would say is... Um, in a time of extreme change, manifestly, if you're entirely dependent on commercial revenue, um, um, you have to think incredibly hard about your business model. On the other hand, let me tell you, life is simpler. It may be tough, but it's a lot simpler uh, when your stakeholders are paying customers and advertisers than when, than when you're, as it were, having to justify. I believe in the licence fee, things like Thing justify what turns out to be an enormous block of public money. So different challenges.
1: Indeed. Well, one of the, the, the things that comes out of your talk is that the the way in which you hope, and indeed all newspapers hope, to compensate for the huge drop in, in advertising is to spread their product across different, di- a range of different platforms yeah. and yeah. To, to take out the news and the features and the leisure and the cooking and so on and to, yeah. put, and to, to sell them in new ways to to new audiences. That does mean, does it not, that the, the so-called sacred wall between editorial and business begins to look a, a little less, a little more porous, because what is happening in newspapers, what must happen in newspapers, is finding new business models within them. Therefore, you are going to be much more drawn into, as a recent article said, you're going to be the suit in the newsroom, and you're, go, you're going to be uh, at times, I guess, clash with your editorial colleagues. Uh, you're not a man for clashes, but but perhaps in this <laughs> in this uh, in this environment, you're kind of drawn in to uh, to to encroaching a little upon what had been, especially for the New York Times, sacred
2: territory. Is that a well, danger? No, I, I, look. Everything's a danger. I mean, you know, we're going through a media revolution. E- doing nothing, by the way, is a danger as well. I mean, it's you know, or, or possibly worse. It's a, c- it's a certainty. But the, I mean, it's interesting. The the uh, it happened in this country as well. Um, but in the, I guess, seventies and eighties, um, New York Times began to develop sections in the physical newspaper with with topics like style and travel and uh, uh, dining, rather grandly called their food, um, um, and there were worries about, is it possible to bring um, uh, uh, Timesian values to the journalism of food? Mm. And the truth is, um, the way the New York Times does restaurant reviews, uh, restaurant reviews, I think, in this country, I mean, possibly being slightly unkind, are a sort of, you know, good writers are given an opportunity for a free meal, and they write it up, and you get about two paragraphs about the food, and the rest is the kind of company or the rest of it. I don't think
1: you're
2: food writers in the audience. Good, good, good writers, folks. Great prose, but but at the Times, I don't think you can allow to write a review of a restaurant unless you've eaten there at least three times, and the average is seven or eight times. So the review is meant to eat the menu, you know, and you know this is the food. So the the Times brings the same kind of fastidiousness, and I think the truth is, the most important thing we have to, to find, and it's with leadership from the newsroom, is. What are we passionate about, and what do we think could be great and interesting? And not every section and not every subject will, 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 will be ripe, but if we, if we haven't got journalists who are really excited about uh, any digital offering, it won't be any good. So, in a funny way, what I would say is I'm, I'm, I'm most interested in, in both from uh, Jill Abramson's newsroom and from Andy Rosenthal's area, this is the opinion area of, of the New York Times, people who've got a passion to do something really exciting. And in a way, I, it's much easier. To have a great idea something which is going to be really interesting people are going to find absolutely fascinating and then trying to figure out how to how to kind of get money from it than it is to somehow begin with the idea of the advertising and then try and try and bring the copy to fit the advertising that won't work
1: just one more part we've got a wee bit of time for questions and i'm going to turn over to you for for the rest of the session but just one more and many of our audience here are former reuters fellows this is your event and many of you are or were foreign correspondents. And Mark, you, you mentioned in passing that the great decline of foreign yeah. correspondents. Yeah. And actually, the New York Times has tended to buck that trend, uh, has probably as many, perhaps a few more, few more, a few less than it's had for many years. Yeah. What do you think? Do, do you see an observable difference? When you go to the the u s where the decline in, in foreign correspondence in newspapers at least and probably also in television it's has true, been, true has true been true very TV very right. very rapid i mean is there what has been advertised as an effect of of dumbing down the audience? Do you think that people are now no less about foreign foreign parts
2: i 'm not frankly qualified to, to 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 give you a kind of sociologist's answer, answer on that but i, I mean I believe we, we live in a world where knowing what's happening in, in different parts of the world is critical. If you are, as a citizen, going to play, you know, should is it appropriate or not appropriate that, that the United States, uh, the UK, and other Western powers should um, take some military action because of the use of chemical weapons in Syria? Now, it seems to me, if you don't know where Syria is and don't understand the background to that conflict, it is very hard for you to form an opinion and to take part in that, you know, arguably pretty important kind of political, political moment in, in, in terms of being a thoughtful citizen. So I believe that, I tell you this about the United Kingdom as well as the as, as US, that it's really important. And what I would actually say is that I think one of the reasons that we have loyal subscribers to the New York Times is because there is a very significant section of the US population who do care passionately about these things and actually look to the Times to 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 cover them properly. And there's a nuance here between, you know, as it were, public broadcasting in, 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 in the UK, where the mission is to try and reach as many people as possible. Of course we want as many people to use the Times as possible. But we don't have that quite the same mission. I mean, the mission is to try and do serious, properly resourced journalism for those people who want to find it. And I would say partly, in a sense, because the Times is... Quite the last man standing, one of the last, relatively few last providers of this. Actually, it, it's a, actually it's a it's a it's a point of differentiation in the market, which is potentially quite valuable. Uh, one just
1: addendum before I pass over. P- people to you. may not
2: know, by the way, that what, what, one of the kind of facts of life is that many of the metro newspapers, by which I mean Washington Post, Chicago Herald Tribune, Philadelphia Inquirer, um, L.A. Times, and so on, used to have foreign bureau around the world and either have one or two or none now. So it's a very, when we talk about the decline in, in international reporting, we mean something very precise, which is there used to be investment and journalists around the world, and, it, and, and typically they're work relying on the wire services now.
1: Do you think that uh, Jeff Bezos can arrest the decline of the Washington Post and make it again into your chief competitor?
2: I think, well, the, the firstly, I, I just want to say that, that I think everyone at the Times is intrigued by and excited by the purchase. And, and, and I think our view is, although, I mean, you know, in a sense, you know, you're, you're right, the Washington Post could potentially be more of a competitor than it is today. On the other hand, I also have the view that you've got one of the most brilliant minds in digital uh, um, uh, now applying that mind to, uh, at least in assistance to the management team at the Washington Post. And um, if they come up with great ideas, I think we'll, we'll look at them with great interest and copy them as quickly as possible, I thought. But... <laughs>
1: Thank you. Well, tune in, on, tune in on Monday for the next instalment of Mark Thompson taking taking on British Parliament. <laughs> Tonight we've been we've been privileged to hear him on newspapers. He, he began by saying he didn't know anything about newspapers, and in the course of his lecture, he showed he didn't. No, he, he showed that he <laughs> he showed he showed that in in less than a year, he's not only grasped it but but has developed with his colleagues, of course, a real prospect of uh, one of the world's greatest newspapers uh, surviving and flourishing in the the years ahead. And we very much hope it will, and so will he. Thank you again.